Would you please remain standing in honor of reading God's word? This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Go ahead and go ahead and have a seat. This week, it's, uh, it's been a little bit different. We, you may have noticed, that's not Thessalonians. We, we're taking a little bit of a detour for the next few weeks. Um, just, Mike would love to be here, and I know he, he is struggling to, to not be here, and he, he wants, he misses you all. Like I said, I think I said last weekend, uh, if you right now during like the service, if you get a moment where you're like, you're just bored during the sermon, feel free to text him and just let him know how much you care for him and love for him. He is, uh, he's still recovering, but it's going to be a while before he is here. So in the meantime, he actually asked that uh, um, myself and one of our elders, uh, Stephen Hall, would step in for just two more weeks. So tonight, he asked me to preach on just whatever it was that God has laid on my heart. And as I've been going through just some devotions and things like that, I've been hovering around Colossians. This, the, these two verses are things, is a lesson that I am just trying to meditate on, especially as we get ready to enter into the school year. You see here, it, it talks a lot about very common things that we've talked about in the past. As a matter of fact, I'm, go, I'm even going to use scripture we used from, from last week in Ephesians. But the big idea that I want you to focus on here is that the idea that, that forgiveness, it extends from developed godly character. Forgiveness extends from developed godly character. One of the hallmark themes of the Christian faith is forgiveness. Something we often talk a lot about, but I'll be honest with you, I think sometimes we struggle with that because this world is hard. And so I, I'm excited tonight to take a moment here to jump into these two verses and just meditate on what it is that God means for us when we look at forgiveness and where that, where that comes from. So before we go on any further, let's, let's take a moment, let us pray, let us prepare our hearts, and we'll dive into God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you speak through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you speak through your word. Father, I pray tonight that as we look at just these two verses, Lord, that you would help us see what it is that you'd want us to see. Lord, I pray that you would meet us all as individuals, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you so that we may know you, Lord, that we can experience you, and thus, Lord, that we can glorify your name because, Lord, you deserve all the credit, Lord, you deserve all the praise. So, Father, help us see you in a beautiful and magnificent way. In your name I pray, amen. So let's just jump into this. Let's just look at that first verse. Verse 12 starts with just a simple command. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved. We see here that God is talking to a church. Specifically, God is talking to the church of Col- uh, the Colossian church, and he's telling them to put on something. And you'll see it's that, it's that list of godly characteristics. But in this, he says, put on them as God's chosen ones. We see here that Paul describes who the Colossian church is, God's chosen ones, people who are holy and beloved. So the idea then here is as as we go on to this is we need to take a look at just that simple command to put on something. It is this idea that we are called to put on Christ. As a matter of fact, just last week, last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24, because it is a common theme that Paul writes to so many other churches that Christians are meant to put away their old life, to take that off, and to put on Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24 says then, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. A couple months ago, we, we talked about a couple things. I got to talk about the idea of that we, we are ambassadors for God, that we represent him. And tonight, to kind of, that was an illustration, but I wanted to bring forth another illustration. You know, 10 years ago when I first joined this church, when I first came, um, I was a big nerd, still am. But I think one of the things that, that people mentioned to me the most is I would wear shirts like this. You guys recognize this? I, you better recognize this. Oh, that's right. The Ghostbusters, right? One of the classic things that I would wear when I first showed up at Valley is I would wear comic book t-shirts. As a matter of fact, I remember one of my favorite t-shirts. I was, I was asked to preach on humility, and I went and bought a, an Incredible Hulk t-shirt that said I'm sort of a big deal, and I wore that during preaching on humility. That was fun. That's somewhere deep in the archives of, of YouTube if you want to watch that. But I, back then, and actually, I, I, my entire life, I've gone through phases. And as I go through phases, I think most people do this, you kind of get into however you dress during that phase. When I was in high school, I was really into alt- alternative rock. I had just discovered a switchfoot. So I was really into like torn denim and cowboy hats. Can you imagine me in a cowboy hat and like torn? My senior photos are that. So I should dig those out and, and show you that. Straight out of college though, as a nerd, I would wear comic book t-shirts. And, and as I started to put on button shirts, button up mature shirts like this watermelon shirt, I started to, uh, I, w- I would cover those up, and someone would be like, Andrew, why are you not wearing your comic book t-shirts? It's kind of breaking my heart. Mindy actually was the one that pointed that out. That's right. It's coming back full circle. Man, I'm just pointing out all sorts of people in service tonight. But in the last three or four years, I've gotten into to working out. And with that, I started putting on different t-shirts. As a matter of fact, if you see me throughout the week, almost every day I'm wearing a t-shirt that says Rogue on it. Just so I can clarify this with everyone, this has nothing to do with Rogue Brewery. Some people thought I was like a raging alcoholic. <laughs> this has everything to do with, with weightlifting equipment. Free weights is what, is what that is. And for like four years, I was really into it. I'm still really into it. Obviously, for different reasons, I'm slowing down a little bit. 
But what I'm getting at is that, you know, you go through these phases that you put on certain clothes. If you're really into a certain football team, a basketball team, or if you're really into, I don't know, crocheting, maybe there's a t-shirt that says that. I, I don't know. But I do know that as we go through phases, we tend to take off certain things and we put on things that have meaning to us. They kind of represent something to us. They're, they kind of communicate to the world something that we're excited about, something that we are about. Well, what's interesting here is that the verb, the Greek verb that says put on then, this is alluding to the idea that we as Christians are called to put on Christ. And in Greek, there are different types of verbs, and this is a verb, it's called an aorist verb. That means there, there is no completion to this. There's no end in sight to this. As in that when you put on Jesus, you don't stop putting on Christ. That when you put on Jesus, you don't get to a point where you're like, you know what, I've outgrown this, or I've outgrown the gospel, or it's time to put this away. No, this is us for the rest of our lives because Christ and his magnificent glory is a wellspring that we can continue to come to and have our thirst be quenched. We, have to, we don't have to go anywhere else but in this. God calls us to let go of our former identity, how we used to do things, how we used to consider things, how we used to go about doing things, how we thought about things, and start picking up Christ and allowing him to be our identity. Now, for some people, when they hear something like that, what they hear, what they hear is religious duty. You know, I used to do bad things, I used to do all these things, but now I'm a good person. I, I attend church, I tithe, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't kick babies, I don't do all these things. These, I'm doing all these things, but the truth is, when you look at the Christian faith and you divorce it from Christ and you look at the things you're supposed to do, that can become burdensome. If, if you're looking at this verse and you're thinking, okay, this is, I got to put on Christ. That means I got to do the things that Jesus has called me to do. I have to just be a good person and I need to make sure that I'm representing him really well. And you think it's all about what you're doing. You're going to make it a lot harder than it needs to be. And it becomes a burden. Putting on Christ should be a blessing, not a burden. Let me say that again. Putting on Christ is a blessing, not a burden. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, 29 and 30, he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When Jesus first spoke these words, when he spoke these words, he was speaking to the crowds of people who were beginning to follow him. He was, beginning, he was speaking to the crowds who had fallen who had been following the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had been trying their best to listen to all the rules and the regulations of their faith. And all that was becoming a burden to them. And Jesus was telling them, if you were going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, if you were going to have a relationship with God, it wasn't about all these things that the Pharisees had put together. 
But in fact, following Jesus compared to that was an easy and light burden. Following Jesus, putting him on, is something that we are called to do. But it's not like putting on some weighted vest that should be intensive, that makes things harder for your life. Instead, it is, it is this life-affirming garment that covers you. It's like a security blanket and lets you know that God is near. You see, oftentimes when we think about Christianity, we do. We, 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 it's, we tend to think about all the things we need to do in order to be right with God. And those are, those are part of it. They're, we're, they're, those standards are there to let us know that we are broken, that we are sinners, only to remind us that we still need Jesus. But what's, what's beautiful about this is something that First Peter or that Peter writes in his letter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this. You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse backs up the idea that, of what we're reading here in Colossians. And when Colossians says that, you know, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are chosen ones and we are holy. That we, we as Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been set apart from the rest of the world. And one of the reasons why it, it, your life may struggle is if, if you're constantly trying to appease that of the world and yet still claim Christ as Lord and Savior, those things don't jive because you have been set apart from the world. But when you've been set apart from the world, you've been, that's happened to you so that you may proclaim how excellent Jesus is. That's what it means to be beloved. In our text today is the word beloved. That is a passive verb, as in you are being loved, that you are just sitting there. Your job is just to receive it. And the Greek word is agapeo, which is, which is part of the agape love, which if you remember from last week's message, that is God's unconditional love for us as believers. So it's our role, our pleasure, our delight to just be continuously receiving God's love. And if you're thinking there, and maybe you're a cynic, and you're like, okay, I know I'm a Christian. I know God has called me to know him, and I know that he loves me, but how can I experience that love? You know, I've walked the aisle. I've, I've, I've gone down the path. I've said the prayer. Sometimes it feels like God's love is so far away. But let me remind you that God has shown you his love, and he continues to show you love in two ways. Number one, God has shown you love by the death of Jesus on the cross. We talk about the death of Jesus a lot. 
And we should. Don't, don't become inoculated to how precious Jesus' death on the cross is for you. Sometimes we talk about things over and over again, and and when I was growing up, I would get in trouble for a lot of things, for the same things, over and over again, right? And then after a while, my mom yelling at me for something, is something I just like, that's fine. I'm inoculated to it. Well, we get that when we hear the same thing over and over again, but listen, let's not skip past how important it is that Jesus died on the cross for you. If you have ever questioned as to whether or not God cares about you or God loves you, he has demonstrated that by the death of his son. God loves you. But God continues to show his love too because our God is alive. Jesus just didn't die on the cross. He was buried and he he was raised again. The God we know, the God we love, the God we serve, the God that we swear our lives and allegiance to is alive today, and he is the head of the church. And the church, as a representative body of him, is an expression of his love to you, right here, right now. Now, I say all that, and you may think to yourself, man, I, I get that, but sometimes I'm a part of different churches. I've been a part of churches, and I don't always feel loved. I kind of feel like what's like I, I'm a part of it. I'm here. I'm checking in. I don't really feel like I'm a part of what's going on. If that's you, hold on to that thought for just a second. We're going to circle back to that. But as you see here, just as we look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we are called to put on Christ, something that we actively do, to develop that character because it is our pleasure to do so. Well, then it continues to go on, and there's a list of characteristics. The second half of Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says this. So we're supposed to put on these things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All these adjectives are descriptive of what it means for us to put on that of Christ. And what's interesting is even if you were to go back to that Matthew passage, Jesus himself said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So let's look at this list, and, I, and for the sake of time, as I was studying this, we, we, we can't go through every single word here. I think that would be a series in and of itself, but what I will do is I will start with just that first one that honestly sets the tone for the rest of the list, and that is compassionate hearts. The idea of compassion, as we see this in the original language, is the idea is to be merciful, It is to be sensitive to those that you are connecting with. A compassionate heart is to recognize someone's, when you're handling someone, it's to recognize their fragility and to be sensitive to that and to act accordingly. It's backed up by by then the idea of kindness. 
Because being nice to someone and being kind to someone are two different things. We covered that actually in, in a message back in, in our Root to Fruit series. There was a really cool preacher who covered the kindness. You can go back and, and check that out. But the idea here is that when we are merciful to someone, we're not meant to be pushovers and let people walk over us. It's just I, this idea when we're compassionate that we are sensitive to the situation that someone is in, that we are merciful to them. So then, if that characteristic sets the tone for the list, what we see here is that godly character is merciful. Godly character is merciful. Now, as we begin to talk about mercy, I really think it's important that we draw a distinction between grace and mercy. Oftentimes, as Christians, we take those two terms and we use them interchangeably because God is described as both grace, gracious and merciful. But we need to understand that grace and mercy are two different things. Very related, but different things. Grace, grace is not, or sorry, is getting, is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. An example of that is actually the, the kids down, down, downstairs right now. The kids know my rules, especially on, on Wednesday nights. I have a thing where we sit down, we do the activity sheet together when they first show up. Then once they finish that, once they finish that, they can go in and play gaga ball. They can, do, they can do some of the activities, other activities and things. It's, it's structured in that way. But every now and then, it's, it's interesting, a, a child will come in and they'll come in late and they'll know that like, their ticket is to do this activity sheet before they can go in and join the other activities. But we've moved on. So the kids are like, oh, I know this is the rule. I, I haven't done that. And there's an opportunity there to talk about grace with the kids. Like, okay, you were supposed to do this and then you can do this, but you know what? In grace, will allow you to go into the kingdom of Gagabal, you know, <laughs> for you to do these things. Grace, just like us, grace, we as sinners, we as offensive, rebellious people do not deserve the kingdom of heaven. But in God's grace, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are allowed entry. That's what grace is. Mercy, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Again, going back to the kids, one of my rules with kids when we play games, we don't whine, we don't complain, and we don't make excuses. That is something I repeat all the time, especially during our, our family Fridays. Our, our whole thing when we play games is like, hey, hey we're here. We want to make sure you have fun. But as, if, as an adult, if we make a judgment call, you just need to follow the Don't argue with me or else you're going to sit out for several games. And the kids know this because I will make kids sit out. If they, the moment a child talks back to me in any game, they're out. After that, it doesn't even matter what has happened. They're out for several games. They hate that. But I've only had to do it once or twice for them to understand that rule. 
But there has been a couple occasions where uh, someone has talked back to me, and then the rest of the group goes, oh, because they all know what's about to happen next. Lately, because I've been reading some books about parenting, thinking that would help with children's ministry, I have been very intentional about using the words grace and mercy. And in this, I've been trying to illustrate to the kids that mercy, the right thing to do right now is to follow the rules, just to be fair, I want to eject this person. But we can show mercy by not allowing this person to be punished. You see, mercy for us as believers is not receiving eternal damnation. Mercy for us is not receiving what we deserve, which is hell. So what we bring this back to the idea that if God calls us to have merciful hearts, there's a better definition that I think is a lot more user-friendly in this. And actually, I, I got this definition from Mike in an offhand com- conversation we had a couple months ago. You see, mercy can also be defined as this. It's not playing the upper hand when you have it. Mercy can also be defined as not playing the upper hand when you have it. Let me illustrate it like this. When, when I was uh, younger, I was a classic nerd. I was part of a debate team. And if you are ever part of a formal debate, you have two teams. One is for something, and another, another team is against something. And then the, both teams do their research. They get ready to, to argue, essentially. And one person will, will, one team will open up with a statement, and then the, both teams will have their, their opening statements. And then my favorite part, actually, has always been the rebuttal. Because in the rebuttal you get to attack the statement that the opposing team made. And as someone who has grown up in that environment, I love rebuttals because I'm looking for three things when I hear someone else make an argument. Number one, an attack, a a logical error that I can attack, or an uncredible source that they have cited, or my favorite is when someone misspeaks and then I can use their literal words against them. This is the person that I am in my heart. <laughs> I, I've told you many times, I love arguing and I love debating. I love it. But there's something about crushing someone <laughs> in an argument that gives me just a huge dopamine hit. And I, love, I, think, I think you all get it. You can't be that way when you work with high schoolers. You can't be that way when you work with kids. There have been many times I have worked with a student that they will say something stupid. (laughs) And in that moment, I could crush them. I have the upper hand. I could crush them right now. And there's a part of me that wants to because it would be fun. But we as believers are called to have a posture of gentleness and love. So instead of passing judgment and just striking that down, I've learned to ask questions to help them develop their own thought process in those things. Listen, being merciful is recognizing when you could crush someone and then willingly not do that. When we look at the idea of, of mercy and if we realize that mercy is, is, you know, 
not getting what you don't deserve, or, or if you're the person who's dishing out to justice, not playing the upper hand when you have it, we find then that mercy is the foundation of forgiveness. Mercy is the foundation of forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says, so after, after Paul tells people to put on godly characteristics, to develop that, and to, to put on a compassionate heart, and all these things, that, that basically a merciful characteristic, 13 says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So let's define forgive. In this, in this sense, and in, in many senses, the idea of forgiveness, it's, it's a term that's used to, to indicate a pardon of fault, to excuse payment when you are owed, owed something, when you are owed something. So from a monetary perspective, if you borrowed money from someone and someone forgives you, they're not just holding it against you anymore. That debt is wiped clean. But at the same time, just like human interactions, when, you, when your feelings are hurt, there are times that you feel like you are owed more than just an apology. You are owed some sort of retribution. You are owed some sort of idea that allows you to be even with that person. But the idea of forgiveness is you saying, that is wiped clean. You no longer owe me anything in that. And can we just say that's hard? Especially the repeat offenders that come to us over and over and over again, that constantly wound, that constantly hurt, and yet we are called to not hold that grudge against them. But you know what's interesting is that Jesus answers that. Jesus, in Matthew 18, he tells, he tells the parable of the debtors. But this comes after the Apostle Peter asks, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone? And it's the famous section where he says, seven times seven, 77, one of those. But then he goes into this parable in Matthew 18. And I'm going to read this for you. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. It's, it's pretty long. Oh, I guess it is. But listen tight. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive from your heart. So let's back up. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Paul, after telling people to put on Christ, and Christ who has a merciful heart, tells us to be like him and to bear with one another, as in to endure one another. What I love about this is Paul saying, I know the church that you guys are a part of, there's going to be people who rub you the wrong way, people that are going to wound you, people who are going to annoy you. You're going to need to endure that with a posture of forgiveness. And then it says, if, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Forgive each other. Why? Because whoever it is that we, are, we have a grievance against within the church, Christ died for them too. And we're all in the same boat. That was part of the message from last week. You know, I'm sitting up here telling us that we need to have a posture of forgiveness. And in that, I just think about what I shared last week about that individual within my life who just annoys me just by his... Their, their sheer existence. And in this, I am reminded, I am reminded, just like I was last week, that I am a broken, broken, sinful man who Christ paid the ultimate price for. And it's based on that, remembering that, that I can be sensitive to the needs and tenderhearted to those who need his love too, so that I may endure others as they are growing in their salvation as well. Remember, church, that this, this command is written to a church. That this passage is written to a church about our relationships within the church. And I'm captivated by this. I am inspired by this. I am pondering this because we need a posture of forgiveness that comes from a merciful heart because who knows what this year has in store for us? If you would have asked me in 2020, at that September, that we were going to see riots 
and fires and all sorts of just national things happening. And people were going to have opinions about a lot of things. And then people would turn in on each other, even within our own church. If you were going to tell me that was happening, I would not have believed it. But here we are, 18 months into this, I read this. And I'm only reminded that we are so broken that we desperately, desperately need to remember that. That we need, all of us, we need Jesus. That's why we're here. We're not sitting in this room for some political reason, for some political agenda, or for something going on. We're in this room, we're watching online, we're doing this because we are gathering around the person of Jesus. And that's what makes us the church. And as we move forward together, as we are on mission together, right, because we are a church that is gospel-driven, we have to find ways to continue to engage the world. Because there are people dying without Jesus. There are people dying without the love and the intimacy of Christ that we have. So if we want to sit and argue about all sorts of things, that's fine. Do that out there. But when we are together, we are on mission for Christ, and we are brothers and sisters. So with that, we have to have a posture of mercy for one another and for grace for one another. I don't know what this year has in store for us. But I'll tell you the honest truth. I am so excited to face it with you. Guys, we're about to baptize some students and some other things. We kicked off the year with baptisms. January like 1, we're like, let's do this. It's been crazy. Let's start off New Year's with baptizing people. And we did. Then we had another baptism service. Then we're about to have a third one this year. Guys, Jesus is not bound by any of the things that we are bound by. So have your opinions, have your frustrations, and I'm with you on that. But let's not forget the war that's in front of us. Now let me circle back to something I wanted to, I wanted to touch. Because God shows, has shown his love and he shows his love. And one of the ways that God continues to show his love is the church. It's us. And there is a large possibility that you have not been experiencing God's love as of late. You may be the kind of person who carries the label you know, of Jesus on your chest, right? You, you wear the name of Christ on you, but yet for some reason, you, maybe you feel like a poser. Maybe you don't feel that connection with him the way you know you're supposed to. It happens. Let me ask you this. How is your relationship with God? How, how is your relation, your personal relationship with God? Because if you come and you gather with the God's people, but you've been far from God, of course you're not going to know God's love. You're not going to know it. If anything, you're probably offended, honestly. You probably 
more challenged and upset and frustrated. That happens. I get that way. I'm a pastor, and I get that way. I spend weeks away from God, then I show up, go through the ring of a roll of church services, and then sometimes I wake up, and I'm like, man, God is far from me. It's because I'm not near God. And if you sense that right now, because I guarantee you that's the issue, you're far from God. I want to give you the opportunity to just turn to him. You know that, that parable of the debtor? It, the idea here is that one person was forgiven a lot, and then he turned around and demanded someone of someone, demanded something of someone that was not as much as what he was forgiven. Intimacy with Jesus happens when you recognize your sin. Don't stay there, because then you start to recognize how beautiful Christ is. And that intimacy, that love just shows up in that. So as I bring this to a close, as I bring this, 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 this to an end, as we challenged, hopefully, by the idea of posturing our hearts to be loving and merciful with one another as we move forward, I would invite you to assess how is your relationship with God? Because one last verse because we didn't cover this, but in Colossians chapter 3, the same chapter, in verse 15, Paul tells the Colossians, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. This year, I don't know what has, what's coming in store for us. It's going to test your semblance of peace. It's going to. But you know what? Christ is still on the throne. And when you start to freak out, man, it is an opportunity for you to identify why. What is it that you don't believe God about? And to grow and to repent in that. I'm not sitting here telling you that I'm the kind of person who has figured it out because like, you guys have watched me go from like hobbling to wheelchair to like moonwalking now, right? Like in the last few months, I have had many moments of God, what? Like, I do not have the peace that you tell me about right now. But man, God has been so merciful and has shown up in those darkest moments. So again, I just invite you that as we prepare our hearts for this upcoming school year, how is your relationship with God? Because it's reflected on how you'll treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this family. Father, I pray that you would meet us where we are at, and Lord, that we would hear your gentle pull at our hearts. Father, reveal to us our brokenness, so Lord, that we can turn around and pronounce your glory. Father, I pray that as we, as we claim to be a church that is gospel-driven, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would press upon our hearts your gospel time and time again. Father, whatever the future has in store for us, Father, I pray that you would give us your peace and a sense of unity as we gather around you, our one and true Savior. Father, I pray that you would bind our hearts in unity, in grace, and in mercy. 
And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us exercise forgiveness, the same forgiveness that you have given us. Lord, be with us and use us for your kingdom. In your name I pray, amen.